Almost a decade ago, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in the case of adopted couple v. baby girl. The 2013 case hinged on several provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act. That's a piece of federal law that gives tribal governments exclusive jurisdiction over children who reside on a reservation. Here's the plaintiff's attorney, Lisa Blatt, in that case's closing arguments. Your decision is going to apply to the next case and to a apartment in New York City where a tribal member impregnates someone who's African-American or Jewish or Asian Indian. And in that view, even though the father's a completely absentee father, you are rendering these women second-class citizens with inferior rights to direct their uh, reproductive rights and their who raises their child. You are relegating uh, adoptive parents to go to the back of the bus and wait in line if they can adopt. And you're basically relegating the child, the child, to a piece of property with a sign that says, Indian, keep off, do not disturb. Fast forward to 2022, and the Indian Child Welfare Act is before the country's highest court yet again. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court heard oral argument in the case Holland v. Bracking. That's another legal action about who gets precedence when it comes to adopting Native children. Here's Brett Kavanaugh, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. I don't think we would ever allow, um, as the court suggested in Palmore in 1984, Congress to say that white parents should get a preference for white children in adoption or that Latino parents should get a preference for Latino children in adoption proceedings. I don't think that would be permitted. How do we draw the line? What does the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, really do? And if the court strikes it down, what would that mean for tribal law and for Native Americans? We'll answer those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. Let's welcome our guests. Leah Littman is a law professor at the University of Michigan. She's also the co-host of the Supreme Court Watcher podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Leah, it's always great to have you on. It's great to be back. Thank you. Also with us, Rebecca Nagel. Rebecca hosts the podcast, This Land from Crooked Media. It's the second season, and it focuses on the case of Holland v. Bracking. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Rebecca, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Rebecca, first, give us an explainer. What is the Indian Child Welfare Act? What does it do? ICWA actually does a lot of different things. I think the simplest way to think about it is that it's a set of guardrails so that if a Native child enters a foster care or a private adoption proceeding, it is harder to separate that child from their family and from their tribes. Um, And it was passed in 1978 after a big national survey found that 25 to 35% of all Native children had been removed from their families and tribes, many by child welfare agencies. And so it requires active efforts to work with the parents to reunify families. Um, It gives tribes more rights in those child welfare proceedings. And um, it also, if a child can't be reunified with their uh, biological parents, it sets out placement preferences of where that child should go next, prioritizing their family and other members of their tribe first. So harder to separate from families and tribes, but not impossible? Oh, not by any means. Yeah. And also, I think one thing that's really important is that ICWA doesn't prevent um, Native families from being investigated by CPS and also doesn't prevent removals or Native children being placed in foster care. It's once those proceedings start, the law works to keep um, Native children with Native families. Leah, let's get to Holland v. Bracking. Why is ICWA before the Supreme Court right now? 
It's basically before the Supreme Court because the conservative legal movement has orchestrated this long campaign seeking to challenge ICWA, partially at the invitation of Supreme Court justices, but partially just through funding of these organizations that started seeding these challenges and looking for possible challenges to make to the Indian Child Welfare Act and to federal Indian law more broadly. Rebecca, what do we know about the plaintiffs in this case? Yeah, so the lawsuit is very complicated. There are three non-Native foster parents who sought to adopt actually four Native children. Um, One of those kids was actually born after the lawsuit was filed, so her case is technically not part of the lawsuit. But when we look at what happened, actually, for the most part, the non-Native foster parents won custody. Every Native child Every Native child, all four of those Native children had a blood relative that wanted to raise them. Every Native blood relative got pushback, whether it was from a social worker, a family court judge, or the foster parents themselves. Only one Native grandmother was able to adopt her grandchild, and she had to fight to achieve that adoption for six years years. And so the claim that the plaintiffs make in this case that ICWA disadvantaged them is just an upside down version of the truth. It's the opposite of what happened. What really happened is that because they had access to extraordinary legal services um, and help because in the child welfare system, there's still a deep bias against Native families, especially Native families who are poor. Um, For the most part, the non-Native foster parents won. And during those six years when that grandmother was was trying to adopt her grandchild, what was happening with the child? She was bouncing around different foster placements um, for three years. Um, She spent the last year and a half of that time in the home of the people who are suing the federal government, Danielle and Jason Clifford. Um, She was reunified with her grandma after three years, but then the adoption could not go through because the Cliffords, in addition to filing this federal lawsuit, also sued um, Hennepin County. And that lawsuit had to go through a series of appeals before Robin Bradshaw could adopt her grandchild. And that took three years. Leah, what about the defendants in this case? So the defendants are the... um federal government, you know, the federal officers and the state is seeking a declaration that the federal government cannot enforce the provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act, whether that includes imposing those protections against breaking up Native families that Rebecca was alluding to, or whether that includes, you know, safeguarding the ability of tribal courts to decide the future of Native children. Natalie, I want to make sure I understood you correctly. You said part of why this case is before the court now is because some justices on on the court sort of encouraged a case like this to come forward. Is that accurate? That's exactly right. You played the oral argument clip from the previous case, ICWA, Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl. You know, during that oral argument, as well as in the opinion, you had Justices Alito and Thomas basically intimating that they were open to constitutional challenges to the Indian Child Welfare Act, either or both on the ground that ICWA constituted unconstitutional discrimination on the basis of race, or on the ground that Congress somehow did not have power under the Constitution to create this set of rules regarding Native nations and Native members. You know, both of those arguments 
documents, as I'm sure we'll talk about, would be quite unsettling to the future of federal Indian law. But the justices basically started hinting to litigants that they were interested in and inclined to possibly revisit some of the settled law in this area. We got this question from Jay in Oklahoma who asks, what are the standards of child protective service? Rather, what are the standards Child Protective Services uses to decide whether to remove a child from a family, and how are they being applied to Native families as opposed to white families? Rebecca? Yeah, I mean, I would say that um, we see huge racial disparities in foster care when it comes to Native families and Black families. Um, in these four cases, every Native child was removed, um, and the underlying issue was substance use disorders. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, one of the cases was open for medical neglect because a mom hadn't taken her child to a doctor's appointment. And so we see a level of surveillance, um, over Native families that I, that you don't see for white families. Um, and one other thing that I think is really important is that compared to white children, Native children are more likely to be removed for what social workers call neglect, um, which often is poverty. <laughs> um, and white children compared to Native children are actually more likely to be removed for abuse. Well, as we said, the justices heard oral arguments in this case earlier this month. Leah, you were you were listening to these arguments. What did you make of the justices' line of questioning? I thought it was quite astonishing the extent to which the justices were trying to portray the Indian Child Welfare Act as doing something that it just does not. The justices kept suggesting, as Rebecca alluded to, to the idea that the white plaintiffs in this cases were somehow victims of the Indian Child Welfare Act, when in fact, you know, the reality on the ground is that Native families oftentimes have a more difficult time, you know, going through with adoptions or keeping their children, you know, in their homes. And what the justices seem to be suggesting suggesting is ICWA somehow means that you have state courts determining that it would be in the best interest of a Native child to go to, you know, the home of a white family. And ICWA somehow prevents, you know, the state from placing the child in a situation that would be in their best interest and instead, you know, requires placing the child within Native communities. But what that line of argument reflects is the very bias that ICWA was designed to counter because that line of questioning is presuming that Native families, the Native community, could never be qualified, could never be the best place to, you know, continue caring for these Native children. And yet the justices just seem to be unable to recognize that they were engaging in the very kinds of biases that ICWA was designed to prevent judges from acting upon when breaking up Native families. We also want to note we reached out to the Office of the Texas Attorney General for comment. They have yet to respond, but the invitation stands. A tribal sovereignty came up a lot in the case's oral arguments. Here's Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. It seems to me that Congress has made a decision that regulating in this area is important for preserving the integrity of tribes as self-governing sovereign entities. And therefore, I don't think it's sufficient for you to say to us that you think that that's not true. So tell me how we're supposed to 
decide based on your view of whether or not this is a sufficient tether as opposed to what Congress has said about it. Rebecca, first explain what is tribal sovereignty? Oh, wow. Well, um, one is that it's inherent. You know, there are over 570 indigenous nations in the U.S. And our existence actually predates the creation of the United States. And so sovereignty isn't something that the U.S. government gives us. It's something that we've had since the beginning of time. Obviously, colonization has um, affected what we can exercise. But from the founding of the Republic and the Constitution, um, the inherent sovereignty of indigenous nations has been recognized again and again and again. And the big legal basis for that is treaties. So the U.S. has signed over 300 treaties with indigenous nations through the exact same constitutional process that the U.S. has signed treaties with other foreign governments like Germany and Japan. And so those um, treaties have set out um, certain powers and rights that indigenous nations have. And and Congress's ability to pass laws like ICWA, um, you know, like health care, a lot of those things flow from what people call the trust responsibility. But basically, you know, the responsibility that the U.S. federal government has to indigenous nations. And so that's why the whole argument that ICWA is based on race and that it's discrimination could be like a bomb going off in what people call federal Indian law. Um, because there are a whole host of federal laws that treat tribes and tribal citizens differently. And it's not based on race. That difference is based on the unique political status of sovereign indigenous nations and our citizens. You were in the courtroom listening to the oral arguments. What were your big takeaways, Rebecca? It was better than Baby Girl. Um, it was better than the last time ICWA was in front of the Supreme Court. There were four justices. You know, you played the clip from Justice Jackson. Kagan, Sotomayor, and Gorsuch were equally skeptical of the arguments that the plaintiffs in Texas were bringing and also constantly brought up the broader implications that those arguments have um, for federal Indian law and actually family law, too. Um but those were only four justices. And so there was another half of the court um, that was less interested in the law. You know, you play that one clip from Kavanaugh. Um, you know, again, you know, laws like ICWA aren't based on race or based on tribes and tribal citizenship. And so the kind of dog whistle of like, well, can, you know, white parents only adopt white children isn't legally how the law works. And so there were a lot of moments where it appeared that the justices were more interested in the appearance of the case or the politics of the case than following um, the letter of the law. Leah, I hope you can pull on a thread here for me. What does this case do around the balance between the Supreme Court and Congress and, and, and the way we legislate, how rules are decided, who has the power to make these final decisions? I mean, it could really represent a huge power grab by the courts against Congress. You know, as Justice Jackson's question indicated, Congress found over the course of, you know, hearings that Rebecca alluded to and investigations that protecting Native families, protecting Native children 
is an integral component of native sovereignty. And if the court says, well, actually, no, Congress is not doing something that safeguards native sovereignty, but is instead just touching on an area we will describe as family law, they are second guessing the work of Congress based on nothing more than their policy disagreement and Texas and the private plaintiffs policy disagreement with the law that Congress enacted. Similarly, if they say ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, unconstitutionally discriminates on the basis of race, that too would fail to recognize that Congress was trying to engage and thought it was engaging with Native nations as political communities, not on the basis of a racial category or you know, a racial designation. And so it would be the court basically saying, we know better than Congress, we just think Congress got it wrong. And that would be you know, part of this pattern of the Roberts Court thinking that they are you know, the body that just gets to decide, you know, not Congress, not the executive branch, how federal Indian law is going to work or how immigration policy is going to work or how every other area of law should function. A member of the 1A Tax Club writes, ICWA provides critical protection for Indian children and tribal sovereignty. It's crucial for those protections to continue. As a clinical social worker, I saw the benefits in the protections for vulnerable tribal peoples. We're discussing the future of the Indian Child Welfare Act. To have your questions answered or be part of future conversations, download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Back to our discussion of tribal law and the Indian Child Welfare Act with this email from Maggie who writes, As a social worker here in Texas, I can say that CPS always tries to place a child within the family unit if they cannot be placed back with the parents, no matter the child's race. Why should it be different within Native American tribes? This lawsuit seems to discriminate against tribes, the exact opposite of what it says it's trying to do. And Jane in Indiana writes, as an adoptive parent of two Native children, I support the placement of Native children in Native families. While I can't imagine not being the mother of my children, I feel that they were placed with us under false pretenses. We were told that they were better off being placed far from high prejudice areas. Well, our children met all kinds of prejudice and stereotyping in our community. We have been told that we were not taking them from their cultural roots. Our daughter was barely two when she was removed from her family. Some of the justices' questions really focused on equating being Native with a racial identity. And here's Justice Brett Kavanaugh speaking to Deputy U.S. Solicitor General Edwin Needler. Uh, You would agree, I think, but tell me if you disagree, that Congress couldn't give a preference for white families for white children, for black families for black children, for Latino families for Latino children, for Asian families for Asian children. Do you agree with that? Yes. That's purely... Uh, based on race, but this is... And, and this is different and because, and I'll let you explain. Because it has to do with Indian tribes. Indi- Including the third preference, which does not require it be of the same tribe? But it, but it, it is a tribe. It is a tribe with a political relationship to, uh, to the United States. Rebecca, is this framing of being Native, uh, casting that as a racial identity, is this, is this new 
No, it's not new. But I would say that it's um, what is scary is that it seems like the Supreme Court is more open to this argument than it has been in the past. I mean, there's decades of court precedent that says that tribes and tribal citizens are a political group, not a racial group. Um, And so sometimes that can be hard for people to understand. But the way I explain it is, you know, just like I because I'm a citizen of the United States or a resident of Oklahoma, certain laws apply to me. Certain laws apply to me because I'm a citizen of Cherokee Nation. And that goes back to the treaty relationship between my tribe and the U.S. federal government. Um, And so the fear with this lawsuit is, is that um, ICWA and this argument that ICWA is racial discrimination, which importantly, ICWA only applies to children who are either enrolled in a tribe or eligible for enrollment. And the placement preferences also only work um, for members of federally recognized tribes. Um, that the fear is that if ICWA can be toppled, that it'll be like the first in a series of dominoes um, and that other federal statutes will fall under that logic, you know? So if ICWA is racial discrimination, well, what about the clinic where I get my health care? Um, if ICWA is discrimination against non-Native foster parents, well, what about non-Native casino developers who can't build casinos where they want to? Um, you know, if we're just a racial group, what racial group has their own land base their own environmental regulations, their own government, their own elections, their own courts, their own police force. Um, and so the fear is, is that it could really um, gut tribal sovereignty in an unprecedented way. Well, Leah, you say this framing has been echoed in some of the affirmative action cases that have come before the court recently. What similarities do you see between the justices questioning in those, que- those cases and, and what you're hearing here? Well, one similarity is just the justice's efforts to equate, you know, all usages of, in the affirmative action cases, race, or in the ICWA case, all usages of Native status, trying to equate all usages as morally and legally the same. And what I mean by that is, in the affirmative action cases, the justices seem to be inclined to say, when schools consider race in order to combat previous discrimination in order to create inclusive open spaces. That is the legal equivalent of Jim Crow era segregation when schools, private businesses refused to be open, you know, to black students or black um, citizens. And in the equal cases, the justices who are suggesting that ICWA constitutes unconstitutional discrimination on the basis of race are equating Congress's use of Native status here in ICWA to protect Native children, to protect Native families, and to safeguard Native sovereignty. They are saying that is the legal equivalent as when the federal government broke up Native families, took away Native children from their homes, and sent them to live with white families in order to destroy Native communities. And so in both cases, the justices are trying to embrace what they call the colorblind version of the Constitution, namely that all usages of race, 
all usages of native status are constitutionally suspect. And that would really, you know, again, hamstring, you know, federal and state government's ability to rectify previous discrimination and prevent further discrimination. Guillermo writes, it seems to me that the intent of this case is to weaken tribal sovereignty, take down ICWA, and other aspects of tribal self-determination can be attacked. And Dee adds, isn't this a foot-in-the-door suit brought to essentially erode indigenous rights, which could affect other areas, land, water, air rights, even casinos? And you all alluded to that before, but I'm, I'm really curious to hear, uh, Leah, your response to this tweet from Catherine, who says, why do you think some on the court are interested in overturning ICWA? Is there that much demand for non-natives wanting to adopt native children? Can you speak to that? I think it's a mix of different reasons why they are hostile to ICWA. You know, I think perhaps some of the justices are motivated by a desire to, you know, make it easier for white families to adopt Native children. I think some of the other justices are motivated by the broader project of a colorblind constitution, that ideological project that we were just speaking about. I think some of the other justices are probably motivated by an interest in limiting Congress's powers, you know, over the area of Native American affairs that would have some of the domino effects that Rebecca was alluding to with limiting the federal government's ability to provide health care or authority to run, you know, uh, gaming or regulatory work by Native nations. And so they are probably motivated by a mix of different considerations that are combining into a very toxic combination that spells real danger and disaster for the future of federal Indian law and, you know, the authority of Native nations. Rebecca, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think we can see a direct tie to gaming with the pro bono law firm who brought this lawsuit that I think arguably without their involvement would not have ended up at the Supreme Court. Um, That law firm is called Gibson Dunn. And last January, um, they filed a lawsuit alleging that the, quote, tribal monopoly in the state of Washington violated their clients' constitutional rights for almost the exact same legal reasons that they're bringing forward in this ICWA case. Um, But in that case, their client was a non-native casino developer, and the harm that he experienced was not being able to make the same amount of money that tribes were making. We're talking to Oklahoma journalist Rebecca Nagel and law professor Leah Littman. We also want to note we reached out to the Office of the Texas Attorney General for comment. They have yet to respond, but the invitation still stands. We're also hearing from you. Janice tweets, when I worked with the Human Services State Agency in the 1990s, discussing historical trauma and addressing cultural and linguistic competence were considered important. I feel these issues have been dropped as critical in the development of children to thriving adults. Rebecca, as we said, ICWA was put in place after the forced removal of hundreds of thousands of Native children from their homes up through the 1960s. For those who don't know, why were those children uprooted? So two things were going on. Um, There was a program through the Bureau of Indian Affairs called the Indian Adoption Project, where the federal government gave the Child Welfare League of America money to literally remove Native children from their homes and place them with white children with the thinking that they would be better off. Um, The other thing that was going on were huge amounts of bias in actual child welfare systems. And so, um, you know, children were being 
being removed because they were being raised by a grandparent or an aunt instead of their biological parents, and that was classified as abandonment. Um, you know, families told stories in congressional hearings of going out to run an errand and coming home and their children were gone. Um, and so I think, sadly, we can see some of that bias is still in the child welfare system. I mean, we can see it literally in these cases. Um, just one quick example, you know, at least two blood relatives were told they couldn't be foster placements because they had uh, nonviolent criminal records. Meanwhile, one of the plaintiffs, Nick Libretti, served a 30-day prison sentence for a DUI the same year he was fostered to be a licensed to be a foster parent um, and went on to adopt, you know, one of the Native children that um, is part of this case. And so, you know, over and over again, you just see the standards um, for Native families and the standards for white families in terms of who's considered acceptable or fit are just very different. And what typically happened to those children who were forced from their homes? You know, I think what's really important um, with Native children, and I think actually adoption in general, is that we listen to adult adoptees. I'll never forget, um, we put together like a resource page for listeners, um, and I wanted uh, links for different ways that the podcast might bring up trauma for people. And I was trying to find resources for interracial adoptees. And when I Googled it, all I could find was advice for white parents who had adopted children of color. And so I think our national conversation about adoption really, really centers the voices and the needs of adoptive parents to the exclusion of adoptees. And when you talk to adult adoptees, especially interracial adoptees, especially Native adoptees, they tell a lot of stories about how it didn't work out so well for them, that even in homes that were loving and supportive, they didn't have a core sense of who they are and that that sense of their identity um, was hard to form and that they always felt a sense of loss and disconnection. And so we hear those stories over and over and over again. And so when we listen to adult adoptees, we hear the reasons why laws like ICWA are important. Now, conservative groups argue the Indian Child Welfare Act makes it harder for Native children to be adopted at all. According to the Pew Research Center, Native children are overrepresented of the American uh, foster system at two to three times the rate of non-Native kids in some states. And you talked about uh, the surveillance of of Native homes, but what do you make of that argument that anything that gets these children adopted is a good thing? You know, what's interesting is, um, and this statistic is from Casey Family Programs, Native children are disproportionately in the foster care system. But when you look at their outcomes, um, that argument that comes from organizations like the Goldwater Institute doesn't actually make sense. So compared to white and black children, Native children are the most likely to be placed with a relative. They're the least likely to be placed in a group home, which is often a last resort um, when social workers can't find anywhere else to place a child. And Native children are also the least likely to age out of the system. So if it were true that we, you know, you just can't find homes for Native children and they ha- the only place that they can go is these, you know, homes of these white families, um, it, it doesn't bear out in the data. And I would also say that it doesn't bear out in these actual cases. And so you would think that this decade-long campaign to overturn ICWA, where they are 
are scouring the country for clients would find cases that actually match the claims that they are making. And they don't. Like I said before, every Native child had a Native home that wanted to take them. For many of the children, it was multiple homes that came forward. And so what is happening isn't that there aren't homes for these kids. What is happening is that in a bias system and also when, you know, these white families can go out and hire lawyers and like bring this entire legal apparatus to bear on these family court cases that they're winning custody over Native families that also want to raise these kids. We got this email from Anna who says, I'm deeply concerned that the Supreme Court seems to shop for these cases. They're looking for opportunities to overturn precedent, the very basis of stability for our system, and to favor unnamed interests. We need ethics reform in the Supreme Court now. Leah, in just a couple of sentences... This isn't the only case involving Native rights that's come before this iteration of the Supreme Court. Can we glean anything from those those cases? Well, I think um, federal Indian law had a brief good period in the Supreme Court when Justice Gorsuch was initially confirmed to the Supreme Court and he voted together with then four Democratic appointed justices to, among other things, actually uphold the law. You know, in the case McGirt versus uh, Oklahoma, which the first season of Rebecca's podcast was about. And in that case, you know, a majority of the court, in an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, again, upheld the law, you know, said we need to read these treaties and laws according to their words, and that's what they did. But then when Justice Ginsburg passed away and was replaced by Justice Barrett, we saw the reemergence of the justices being willing to ignore the law and discard precedents just to do what they wanted to do, and I'm concerned that that trend is going to continue. That's Leah Littman. She's a law professor at the University of Michigan. She's also the co-host of the Supreme Court Watcher podcast, Strict Scrutiny. Also with us, Rebecca Nagel. She's host of the podcast, This Land, from Cricket Media. Its second season focuses on the case Holland v. Bracking. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Leah, Rebecca, thanks so much. Today's producer was Paige Osborne. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.